Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals. everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that right over there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, those pesky humans finally give the apes a reason to rise in conquest of the planet of the apes. Now, the biggest, the newest, the most exciting of all the planet of the apes pictures. Climaxed by the spectacular revolt of the apes. The most awesome, the most horrifying spectacle in the annals of science fiction. First pampered as pets, then abused as servants, now oppressed as slaves. This will be the end of human civilization, and the world will belong to a planet of apes! Watch the screen explode as man faces ape in the ultimate revolution. There is fire, there is smoke. 
In that smoke, from this day forward, my people will plot and plan for the inevitable day of man's downfall. And that day is upon you now! Are you exhausted by the apes? No way. The apes tiring you out? <laughs> no? No. Not at all. I gotta tell you, I... I I know these films are divisive for folks, but my goodness, I have fun with this movie. That's what I'd like to hear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I knew you would. I knew you would. And, you know, I, insofar as my overall rating, uh, you know, it, it is, it's going to be what it's going to be. But I'll tell you, I, they slash the budget. They slash the effects. They shoot it on uh, <laughs> like a UCLA business complex. <laughs> Century and City. It this is, is brand Century new City. Century right, City, right, right. Yeah. Brand new Century City. And it is, uh, I have even more fun with this one than the last one. They keep getting better. The further we get from Heston, the more I enjoy these movies. <laughs> this is absolutely my, my favorite that is not the original Planet of the Apes. Um, really? I, well, not necessarily counting some of the the more recent ones, which I really enjoy and are probably pretty high up there. But of this first set of five, this is my second favorite. I love this this whole revolt that happens here. I just love the way that this story plays out. It's such a dark story, and maybe that's why I gravitate to it. I find it such an interesting twist and direction to take in the course of these films, which generally have been exciting, you know, action adventure types of films with kind of a dark twist ending. This one really goes down a dark road pretty early on and stays on it uh, for the bulk of the film until we have a massive revolt, um, which I I suppose we're meant to buy into. This is kind of a, a leads to a global revolt that, becomes a planet of apes and uh i i think it's a really effective film and i love the characters i really enjoy um uh um, ricardo montalban in this film i think that his character is a great um addition to continue from the previous film and i love how his character develops and uh and that dark turn with his character um, it really is a powerful moment for me. And I also love Roddy McDowell. I think it's so exciting to have him back in this film um, and uh, and continuing as a different character, but doing such a great job of this whole idea of kind of a, a, a neophyte to this world of kind of what the real world is like and being thrust into it and that big transition that he has that turns him into a leader of the revolt. I love it. How cool is it that Roddy McDowell is back playing father and son? Uh, I, I think that's a that is a really nice uh, sort of continuation of um, his his role. We liked him so much in the first two of three movies that he's in in the first sort of trilogy. But um, this one coming back as Caesar uh, now that Cornelius is gone is uh, I think uh, it's touching. It's really touching. I, I enjoy it very much. Um and and they made him look the same, right? It's not the same mask as Cornelius, but it, it looks the same, right? It's very similar. Like you can tell that it's pretty much the it's same fam- face structure. Familial, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like when, like when we had the second version of Cornelius in Beneath the Planet of the Apes, it was a little off-putting because yes, it was Cornelius. It was a man in a in in that same costume, mm-hmm. but you could just tell from the facial structure that it was something slightly different about it. Here, you can totally tell it's Roddy McDowell still, and yeah. it's interesting. The only difference that I really note is that he sounds more muffled than I recall Cornelius sounding. And I don't know if that's really uh, intended or just the design, but that's how I can kind of distinguish the two. What were we doing in 1991? Because I don't think we had ape slaves. Uh, Speak for yourself, man. (laughs) (laughs) No, somehow the dog and cat disease that killed every every, uh, domesticated dog and cat in the world never struck. So in 1991... Um, yeah, it was not quite <laughs> not quite as devastating a time as is depicted in this film. It's interest. It's it's so funny watching films from the past that take place in the future because this was 1972, um, and, and you know taking place in 1991, and here we have the future as it's depicted, and it's so funny to watch this now 
looking back at 1991, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's definitely not this. Yeah, I'm I'm running through Wikipedia's 1991 page, and I will tell you so far the biggest event of note besides a lot of stuff in the Middle East, lots of war stuff, lots of Iraq stuff. But of greatest note to us is April 1st, 1991, Comedy Central was launched as a cable, cable television show in its current format. 1991 feels like it's been here since before I was born. That's really interesting. There you go. That, yeah. That's the biggest note that I found on That's a big note for 1991. Yeah. Uh, this is a story of revolution. It's a story that uh, follows up on stories of race and gender politics in the last movie, nuclear warship in Beneath, and uh, a sort of religion in uh, in the first film. Uh, and, and here we are. Like Everything you ever wanted to know about geopolitics can be wrapped up in this set of films about the apes. Isn't that charming? Well, Paul Dane really has uh, been enjoying this opportunity, just like Rod Serling did in the first film, to take current uh, topics and find ways to weave them into the story. And with all of the race riots uh, from the late 60s, certainly Paul found it an, an, uh, an ample source of material to create this idea of revolt um, and and this i think it spoke very strongly to um certain communities uh, like the african american community and um with with a a powerful leader um leading a revolt like caesar who very much was akin to somebody like malcolm x and and found a way to put it into this science fiction story with some really interesting dialogue that allows for some great exploration of these issues you know, I, I think we should talk then a little bit about the, you know, how these issues get sort of massaged into the narrative. And that, that really starts with Armando, I think, in the um, uh, the, the opening, uh, you know, in our first act centers around kind of the interrogation of Armando. Is he hiding the, the talking ape? Uh, and, and we have this really, uh, I think, this interesting transformation he goes through. You alluded to it in the beginning. What is your what is your sense of Armando and and Ricardo Montalban's portrayal of this of this um, circus owner turned uh, champion of the apes? Well, it's interesting, and I think we'll find as we did with the previous films, they're not as strongly written as they um, could have been. Um, and I think a lot of that is the fault of Fox looking at them like like fun, cheap genre pictures, even though the people behind them were still trying to make some interesting stories and, and get to these deeper themes with them. Um, but I mean, there are definitely story problems through here, uh, not the least of which is the kind of the setup of the story where Armando has had Caesar hidden away in the circus for apparently 18 years because Caesar walks in, uh, you know, an 18 year old ape now completely oblivious <laughs> to the world that he's living in. He is so naive that yeah. it's almost shocking, um, but it, it actually plays well. And that's why I I find myself actually liking it quite a bit, even though I don't 100% buy into the fact that, that Caesar is this naive. But when you get that moment when um, when Armando has Caesar and they're watching these these guards um, beat an ape who made a mistake, and it's it's really powerful to see Caesar. Uh, well, at this time, Milo mm -hmm. scream out of terror, you know, or out of anger, you know, um, lousy human bastards. And the way that he plays it, where he's just like lousy human bastards, and he's so ashamed of himself, and and. And knows he, how much trouble he could get into that he instantly like bites onto a piece of paper trying to silence himself mm -hmm. and, and go back to playing playing the dumb ape. Um, it's really interesting. But I think that it, I, I like the way that Armando plays kind of our our exposition. Um, he's, he's like the head of exposition. He might as well be wearing a hat. Uh, because he's really <laughs> he really lays it on every time he's talking to uh, Milo about this world in which they live and um, and paints a really bleak picture for him and it's it's powerful I think to see yes it's it could have been handled in a stronger way but I think it's still effective 
I think you're I think you're right. It works for me because I I don't know. I, I think I'm giving it a lot of grace in terms of filling in some of the holes. I do buy that he comes in, Caesar or Milo in this case, comes in to this to the big city, right? He comes into the big city, uh, that this could be a first time for him in the big city that he could have been really, um, you know, hidden away in the the circus and not exposed to that. I buy that. I wish we could have seen a little bit more about it for a movie that doubles down on on monologuing uh, as much as this one does in the beginning in the first act. It feels like we should have been able to to fill some of those holes without requ- relying on our own imagination. And this is a a fault I find early in the movie that comes back and pays uh, hefty dividends for me uh, as we transition into the third act uh, or into the second uh, in the middle of the second act, uh, where the film just jumps through some flaming hoops and expects us to go with him and uh, with it and and it doesn't it, it isn't effective in some important areas but speaking specifically of Montalban he becomes sort of the beating heart of the film he is the 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 good human in the face of the hateful human trope that you know we got to experience at the end of escape from planet of the apes you know we have the psychologist who goes batty and and shoots caesar's parents we get to uh, to see Armando stand up to the face of that and ultimately succumb to it um, over the course of his interrogation. Yeah, right. It's it's really powerful and affecting. I find, and you're right. He's totally the beating heart of this film, mm-hmm. and uh, and what works so effectively is just this. It's kind of this this. Um, I don't know, just this, he, he's got his eyes opened to everything and he really believes that there is a way for Milo to have a future, but he's very cautious and it's really powerful watching him go through this uh, transition of dealing with Milo as Milo makes some mistakes that uh, put them into this situation effectively. And yes, perhaps if he had introduced him to it earlier on in Milo's life, it wouldn't have led down such a dark road, especially so quickly. I mean, this is his first mm-hmm. time to town and and Milo already makes such an egregious mistake that it basically leads to Armando's death. And that's that's right. horrible. And it's really powerful, I find, especially when uh, Milo, although at this point he's probably Caesar, finds out what happened and he, he runs out into the darkness screaming and crying um, and it's a really powerful moment. And I find that um, that is really a great catalyst for for Milo slash Caesar to make that transition into um, allowing his anger to kind of rule him. The first introduction for uh, for Milo Caesar to the kind of world that he has been introduced to is when he goes into to uh, he, he runs away from that opening sequence you described right after he screams and Armando takes takes the, the brunt of the interrogation. He runs off. He seek, sneaks his way into a cage full of some other apes and is shunted into the system sort of anonymously and is introduced to ape conditioning where he is exposed to disco lights and flamethrowers and <laughs> the rest of the ape stapo humans who are are very serious about their jobs. They've got their billy clubs and they're like GI Joes with all their special little roles and then they go about torturing the apes. What do you think of this sequence? In retrospect, it's pretty funny to watch because it, <laughs> it's it's so silly and well, everything, i know which side you would be on <laughs> everything is so cheap um that it's one of those things where i think um if you're not buying into the film then it's going to be hard to buy into if you can't get past the cheap um quality of everything going on in this film it's going to be a hard one to really get through but i think if you can buy into some of this nonsense it's really powerful and it's kind of shocking in what's happening in this film. And this film is, it just is so much darker than anything we've seen before. Like what these humans are doing to the apes is some of the worst like slavery conditioning that you could see. I mean, it's just, Mm -hmm. it's brutal the way that they are, are forcing them to do these things in order to shape them. I mean, it's like watching circus performers use that giant hook thing when they're training the elephant, how to, 
do things. I mean, it, it pains me to watch this sort of thing. And mm-hmm. it could be because they're, they're animals, or in this case, kind of meant to be animals. But it still is very effective. It works, I think, because of that, because these people are have have found a need to create something more than what their dogs and cats could give them and are creating uh, using this opportunity the fact that the dogs and cats all died of whatever disease and now they're adopting apes as their pets finding an opportunity to use that to basically create slaves for themselves and it's really it this this future world that the film is creating is really a shocking one actually and if you if you can get past the silliness of of what you described as like these disco lights and flamethrowers which it essentially is it is dark and you see yeah. these these apes conditioned to such a degree where they are hairdressers they are uh, errand runners they are doing all these things for people that the people are too lazy to do it's like the little robots in wally but they're all these apes and they're being tortured to get to this point. It's absolutely horrifying. That is, I think, the gift of these apes movies, right? You just said it, and that was what was in my mind, the uh, the sort of AI robot future, the robot slave future. So we have movies like Bicentennial Man, where you have these AI uh, assistants who sort of gain humanity. We have iRobot, where we're, you know, we're, we're going through the motions of, uh, you know, how to try AI that are, that are sort of programmed. But that's really the the difference here that in those movies that are definitely cultural reflections on our humanity and how we we relate to a subservient class in those movies you just program the machines to do what you want to do at the beginning in this movie we actually have to unveil our humanity or lack of it in order to get to the point where we have a subservient class. We have to torture them in the course of these stories in order to make them do what we want them to do, like the robots of the future. And the robots of the future, then, are really just a more convenient way to to eliminate part of its process improvement over what we have displayed in this movie. And that's what makes this movie harder to watch, because, you know, on some level, we're thinking, God, somebody wrote this. Like, somebody thought this through and somebody thought this was a reflection of what we're doing and i regret that i live in a world like that it's tough and that's that's why these movies work so well as the social commentary under the guise of a genre picture they can also do things that are uh, surprisingly innovative for being so cheap like for example how handy is it that they have the energy field doors on the the ape cells <laughs> right like, that's got to save some money, right? Yep. <laughs> Turn on the flashlights, everybody. We don't even have to make a door. Or how about ape hand washing? Like, gather the cast for about a 35-second shoot by a sink. And now we have a super engaging sequence of apes washing their hands like humans. <laughs> what? You know, we're going to go from electrocuting you, uh, gorilla, to teaching you how to do hospital corners on a bed. Right. That is, that's fantastic. It's very funny. And it, to a certain extent, it seemed very 70s. Well, and the drinks were all served <laughs> on trays. You know, I mean, right, all right. of those those things. It was very fancy. Very it, fancy. It was very nice. Yeah. And thank goodness. They Speaking of the March of Progress, right? We're just going to rip the cords out of every 1970s industrial handset telephone. And that will make the phone cordless. But we're not even going to fill the hole where the phone plugged in. <laughs> You're just going to, this is just straight up pretend. <laughs> oh, budget cuts, man. Gotta love them. It is great. Yeah, they, they, they have a fun, you know, I think for the most part, they do an effective job of, of making a, what essentially is, I, I would venture to say the largest scale story of, of the franchise so far. I mean, maybe, maybe beneath also, cause it has a big, army marching to take down the the underground dwellers but i mean it's it's an ape army battling all these humans and it's done so cheaply that it's all shot at night in actual darkness where it's really hard to see what's going on all in one location like they do an effective job i think of actually making it work with the the budget that they had by this point we have been introduced to don murray as breck uh, he is our central nasty human. Uh, wh- what do you think of Don Murray's portrayal as the big bad? 
it's you know it works it's a little on the nose it's a little uh um one dimensional but in the end i end up really liking him and i think it's because he has some great monologues and man does he just deliver them well <laughs> they're fun to watch so i yeah i i guess that's my opinion of him he is great i mean i really in- enjoyed him but when you say one dimensional man yes we're going to hang a flag on that. He is a one-trick pony in spite of all of his trusted advisors uh, who um, clearly have no sway over him whatsoever. Uh, he's he's just the bad guy, which is, is no real different from the bad guy that we've had in the movies past. But um, in this one, it just it, it feels like such a such an obtuse rock in a hard place position that they've been in uh, that um, it. It, it makes him a little bit of a lampoon of himself. And I think now is probably a good time to talk about the theatrical versus sort of director's original beginning and ending of the film, uh, because it directly involves him and a satisfying end uh, to his one trick poniness. Well, and I think we also need to bring Harry Rhodes into that conversation because yeah. I find him a, a um, an equally compelling antagonist Uh, he's not really the antagonist but he works for the antagonist and his character i find to be a really interesting addition to the story albeit one that's obviously placed there to be the african-american in the in the cast that can allow for some of the conversations that that caesar ends up having with him well also he's the he's a change character right yeah caesar obviously changes dramatically he changes uh harry harry's character malcolm mcdonald yeah absolutely right so he he ends up changing over the story it's not at the level of like a Martin Luther King versus Malcolm X sort of relationship that that McDonald has with Caesar. But there is an element of that where he sees a different way to move forward. And Caesar goes down a really dark road of you're all going to die or be under our thumb. I mean, that's kind of the path that Caesar takes in the in the theatrical cut. And it's really interesting watching that final uh, that final showdown with all of the guards and watching Malcolm standing off to the side, talking to Caesar and watching Caesar and seeing what Caesar is doing. Very powerful. But yes, it is different than the, um, and I, sorry, I said the theatrical cut that was all in the unreleased cut, but the theatrical cut, um, was a much different story. In, in the theatrical cut, we get this, well, in both cuts. I mean, we have this wonderful conversation between the two of them that again, you talk about wearing the race, race on their sleeves uh you know caesar's standing with mcdonald and he comes clean and says yes i'm i'm the ap we're looking for and they have this conversation about the change that is coming where caesar is wildly and uh, i i think unadvisedly open about how he feels to this guy before they really have a relationship you can tell he's really pushing the those boundaries uh and and ultimately ends with this little gem we cannot be free caesar says until we have power you more than anyone else should understand that uh you know sub subtext because you're black you know (laughs) i don't think i don't think you you could you you don't need to say that in any other language i mean we get it we we totally get it then that sort of transition that transformation leads us to the final confrontation in the courtyard uh and caesar gives his big speech which is fantastic the ending of the unreleased cut is a very dark ending with Caesar basically saying, we are going to uh, dominate you. Um, and he really tells them that uh, that day is upon you now. He says, you know, I, I'm here and I am I'm taking you down is pretty much uh, the way that that dark ending is. And and McDonald says, you know, but this isn't how it's supposed to be this, you know, you know, we're not, we're not supposed to end it this way. He's like, oh, but we're not humans. We, we, and, and it's basically it's this dark ending saying, you know, this is the end. It's now planet of the apes and we're going to rule you, you stupid humans. Mm-hmm. And then you watch his face as he watches the fires burn. It's very dark. And in, at this point, Breck is, has been subdued by some apes and he is on the ground. Oh yes, yes, and and this and is this is they, the big change. And, well, and they beat the they beat him in a very brutal beating to death, 
uh, and that's that is an additional part of uh, of all of this after Caesar's speech. Now, my understanding is that this played in Phoenix. Correct. In 1972 at a preview audience, because right. Phoenix has all the previews. Boy, does it. And has since time immemorial. We are the place. They played this and it didn't go well. Uh, Moms that this, were dragging their children tough. out. Yeah, that it was it was tough. And so what they ended up doing because of these glorious budget cuts, as I understand it, is they end up playing a lot of the because most of the apes end up beating him with their guns. Right. They have guns right, now. And right, so the they're beating with the guns, butts of their guns. And so they ended up playing a lot of that in reverse as a symbol of, you know, we're not going to beat you after Caesar after Caesar hears Lisa yell no, uh, you know, speaking. And then uh, he gives another speech. And so in this case, Roddy McDowell came back, did another speech. They shot a lot of uh, close-ups on his eyes and inserted that to the end. I- at the end of the film, after his triumphant, we're going we're gonna to burn it to the ground speech. And this time he says, but now we're going to put away our hatred uh, and, and we're not actually going to kill this guy because that would be bad, right? The moms in <laughs> Phoenix said, don't kill that guy. So we're not going to kill that guy. Uh, and I have to say, uh, I prefer the uh, the unreleased. Well, and it's it's. Uh, I mean, they, there were also little bits and pieces of bloody shots that they had trimmed a little bit, uh, just to keep the blood not quite so um, uh, gory. Because there's a lot of blood throughout this film. Um, yeah, there's very little in this one. I, I actually yeah. made a note. Uh, there's a fight in the control room in the theatrical cut where you actually see some splashing blood. And I thought that is a miss. Like, clearly, they, you know, they've excised so much other blood. Like, this is a sequence that, that well, do you see the I, shot somebody missed. When Breck takes the gun, and there's like that the gorilla in there that's freaking out and and trying to, you know, get to him or whatever and he grabs the gun out of one of his soldiers hands and walks up and shoots him in the head point blank range and you get a, a reverse shot of that face as all of a sudden blood <laughs> just blasts oh, out of it yeah it's like whoa hello so no, yeah. they, that's gone yeah so so yeah. it is a much bloodier film uh, when you watch the uh, the unrated cut, mm-hmm. and but I, it has such a strong ending, I can't imagine that ending of peace in context of the franchise. It just doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't to me either. It really doesn't, and it doesn't allow Caesar a well deserved character transformation. Right? This is where he's been. This is where this is the path all along. Right? This is this is what he was meant to do over the course of this film. And, uh, and and so I find the, the theatrical uh, really disappointing in that regard. I think that's too bad. And I, and I think probably they could have sanitized it, but let let them kill Breck anyway, uh, you know, to save the, the Phoenix moms, um, you know, I, but but still actually tell the story that needed to be told. Well, and it's tricky. I mean, this is an interesting direction for this franchise to have gone down, right? I mean, this is a franchise that... It's funny because as we talked about um, the first film, this was back when these films were rated G when they came out because, you know, people just, you know, ratings were kind of this newish thing. And and this whole idea of these different ratings was kind of a, a new world. And mm-hmm. so it's really funny to see how these this franchise has played with their stories, which are relatively tame um, with dark elements in them. But here is a film that, I mean, they knowingly go into with a script that is so much darker and, and, uh, let it move forward with this way, um, only to, at the end, to kind of go into panic mode saying, oh, this is part of this franchise. We forgot. We can't go this dark with this franchise. It hasn't been this dark before. Mm-hmm. And, and backpedal. And I mean, here's a story about a character whose name is Caesar. And they right. backpedal <laughs> on the whole point of this revolution. It just it, they they take a lot of the steam out of it, and it's really uh, it's an unfortunate thing. I mean, it still did well at the box office, but it really uh, it's unfortunate that they had to go that route. And I'm just very grateful that they've released the unrated cut. Oh yeah, I mean this whole the whole transition of power from Breck to Caesar, this whole you know the king is dead, long live the king narrative. I think is so strong when you get to see it. As it as it needs to be told, <laughs> you're right. His name is Caesar for crying 
out loud. <laughs> right, right. They didn't get their own gag, right? <laughs> a- anyhow, it, it tells a, a really interesting story. The You know, it's when we hear him, uh, you know, Breck talk about, you know, when we hate you, we're hating the dark side of ourselves, right? That is such great introspection into the state of race and revolution in the 70s. Um, so, I, you know, I just think that whole piece is is great for what it represents. Still, as you said, that last act is a long slog through fire. It opens with some of the best camera work in the in the sequence, the, the staging camera, right, T- showing us how all the humans are lined up with their guns and their shields. I think it's just really dynamic and dramatic and interesting to look at, to watch the apes, you know, um, slinking across the courtyard, dumping gas everywhere. Uh, I, I love those shots. And then it's a... It's a long walk through fire to get to those big moments at the end. I, it's one of those films that is a battle film. And I guess it depends on how invested you are with the characters um, and how um, how much you're into the story to buy into all of that. I, You know, I disagree, though. I disagree. And I think you already gave me the reason why. I think it's not so much how much you think about the characters. It's how much you can see it. No, and that makes it very difficult. But that being said, I still find myself wholly invested in that whole battle. It's really, I find, engaging. I love the way they shot it. It's mm-hmm. it's very creative. It's uh, it, I, I can always tell what's going on. And it makes for a really interesting and compelling battle. I mean, it's 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 like a battle in, in Braveheart or something like that. It's this big battle scene that takes up like a half hour of the film. But I think they do a great job with it. Yes, it is very dark. Um, and, uh, and that does make some of it pretty difficult to see, but I still find it really compelling and I'm in it the whole time. I want to take a step back from this before we come to blows about the battle scene, because (laughs) that would be ironic. I want to step back a little bit to Caesar's transition because this is, I I talked about the, the movie, uh, missing some important pieces, uh, showing us some important things to give us a greater sense of context. And for me, the biggest miss in the film is Caesar's transition montage. He discovers what has happened to Armando and then he is this leader, right? He just is. We get this. He suddenly, he is a leader of the fight. He's collecting weapons. He's collecting, you know, knives and judging the sharpness of butcher blades. And he's stocking up on all kinds of goodies. And everybody is talking to all the apes are are genuflecting to him appropriately. He's just become a leader of this ape underground. And... I don't get any sense of how time works in this montage. I don't see how he has gone from this absolute innocent in the beginning of the movie to, to your point, too innocent in the beginning of the movie to this esteemed military leader of the revolution within 35 minutes. Yeah, and that's uh, that's a screenwriting um, issue with the story, and I certainly uh, feel the same. I feel like they could have made that stronger. I do think that he makes an interesting um, uh, start with his transition at the beginning when he screams out, lousy human bastards, and that whole idea when he's first introduced to the horrors that are happening, I find that really compelling, and um, less so when he's... Uh, Uh, now in the system and he's going through the training and he's proving basically look how smart i am i can do it already and he's kind of you know that part is like okay he it's not working quite as well as that previous bit he's not getting as angry at the humans as i think he might otherwise be um but it does like when when uh, armando does get killed and it leads to this much darker ending uh, of the story, um, yes, I do feel like uh, we deserve a uh, some more elements to his transition. Now, again, I, I think I find myself forgiving it quite a bit because it is so low budget, because it was written written um, nearly fifty years ago. It's it's obviously not as strong as uh, as it could be, or as perhaps a film nowadays might be written. But I still think 
largely they do a good job with it, even if I find a lot of struggles and I find myself forgiving it more than maybe I maybe other people do. I don't know. Well, I think I think you do. (laughs) And that's not necessarily (laughs) a bad thing. We need the the recruitment scene. That's the big the biggest miss. Right. He is having in in the early scenes in the courtyard. He's having an emotional response to pain. Right. He sees pain in his other. He's having an emotional response that does not give him practical experience of leadership. We don't have any demonstration that he is somebody who can rally these apes who largely can't communicate at the level that he can. Right. So it, it takes me to Hamilton. Right. When we have the 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 there's the the big song in the bar where he demonstrates that he knows what he knows what to do. He has some brain in his head he has some a strategy he has something that he can do and over the course of one song they say we got to get this guy in front of a crowd like that's the scene we're missing in this movie to give caesar's transition his transformation into a military leader that of weight and it's actually something that i think uh, we get in the modern caesar uh you know in the the modern trilogy they really do well i think that's one of the great strengths of the movies leading into war of planet of the apes that that we see a a a Caesar that has made that full and deep transformation. And we just don't get it here. And I think, uh, I think a part of that is this element that here is an ape who can speak. None of these others can. And watching them as they go through that, as the apes go through that transition of learning, Hey, this is something I can't do. This is somebody who might be worth paying attention to, might be worth um, listening to and, and helping. And when you get that powerful scene in Rise of the Planet of the Apes, in that um, that uh, ape uh, Gestapo that they're or not the Gestapo, but the the ape prison that they're basically in, um, you see and 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 the the kind of the struggles that Caesar is having with the other apes. But when you see Caesar finally scream out "No!" at the guards and mm-hmm. how that works at at changing them, that is something that we needed here, and that is something. I mean, Rise is essentially kind of. Uh, very much a spiritual remake of this film and that is something they really get right in that and this film they're they're struggling to find it it's not really quite there and and i feel like they if they had worked on the script a little bit more given a little more money they might have been able to find it you want to talk about getting it made it's this is a film that is a really tight budget but as we discussed last time this is one that they had in mind before they uh, before they finished the last one, they uh, they ended the last film with that that note saying, "Hey, the baby Milo uh, from Cornelius and Zira is alive. We're going to continue this story." And here we have it. Yes, it's just a super super tight budget because again, Twentieth Century Fox has just been doing all these cutbacks on these low budget uh, on these kind of genre films, trying to make back the money that they lost in the late sixties. And they do, um, you know, it's it's a tricky film, but, you know, it, it's a film that I think they do a, a good job with. I think that by this point, um, Arthur P. Jacobs, who is kind of producing this whole uh, this whole series, had a really good grasp on what he was able to get done within these budgets and with uh, within this franchise. And so. He brought on Jay Lee Thompson as the director, who actually they wanted to have on from the very beginning, but he was not available back when they were doing Planet of the Apes. He was on a different project, and that is why um, um, he was finally brought on here, and that's why they brought on Franklin Schaffner on that first one. But but honestly, as low budget as it is, I feel that um, in the end, Jacob's decision to bring Thompson on at this point and then for the next film as well is a smart move. I think that it works well in context of the story that they're telling here. So it's, it's a, it's a low budget film, but I think that Jacobs um, knew what he was getting into. And by this point had found the core team with Paul Dane as the writer and then Thompson as the director to really make something um, that stands out. Thompson's an interesting bloke, right? I mean, he's, he's behind guns of Navarone, uh, which is another one of those, oh, my dad made me watch it and change my life forever kind of movies. <laughs> uh, he's he's behind a number of credits, uh, you know, significant credits through the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, kind of rounding out through the, the late 80s uh, with some movies that were less 
significant. Uh, but uh, he's an interesting guy. Do you get a sense? I mean, are you a are you a J. Lee Thompson fan? Have you seen some uh, of his other movies enough to make a note of of what kind of Thompsonish stuff he brings to this one? I, you know, I'm not as familiar with him. I know he's more of a. This is a guy who is more of a feature director, as we talked yeah. about with the last uh, couple directors. They were much more TV directors. Here we finally are given somebody who is a feature director. I mean, he had, in fact, I don't know if he ever really directed something for TV. No, he did a couple. He did a couple, did a couple TV yeah. movies and a, and a couple TV episodes, but largely. In fact, he did a, a TV movie between this and Battle for the Planet of the Apes yeah, right, immediately right. after this one. You're right. You're right. Yeah. But. Largely, I think that he was just making making what he could. I, I think of what he's done, other than Planet of the Apes films, um, Cape Fear, the original, I think is the only film I've seen of his. So, you haven't seen Navarone? I haven't. No, I haven't. I know. Well, that's a heartbreaker. I'm sorry. Yep. Your dad Your dad never made me watch it. <laughs> oh, dad, it is his fault. I'm going to blame I'm him. I'm going to blame him, yeah. Um, but I mean, he's had a busy career. I mean, almost 50 films that he made. And, um, I think that he kept very busy, but I, I, you know, he's a guy who I feel when I look at the films that he was involved in, I feel that, you know, he's a guy who knew what he was doing behind the camera and watching some of the behind the scenes, uh, footage of this, this film and of battle, I felt like he could tap into, the um the energy of the franchise tap into this social commentary that paul dane was bringing to it and find a way to do it um on time and on budget uh for the studio i i think in that end he was doing a uh a, a good job with these things you know he's he's an interesting fellow who was involved in this franchise kind of from the beginning because he actually co-owned the rights with jacob but because as i said he was working on another project which was mckenna's gold he had to back out um and uh, so it's interesting that he here was a guy who was so invested in it that he actually co-owned it with uh, Jacobs. But, um, yeah, I mean, actors trusted him. Gregory Peck mm-hmm. um, worked with him and said that he's he's one of only four directors that he could trust to tell him whether or not he was faking his performance. So, well, look, Thompson's a Canadian. <laughs> he brings with him the baggage of trust. And that that's a sword that cuts both ways. He's I'm a British, British Canadian, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, there you go. There it is. Uh, we've talked about a number of our favorite uh, folks in the film. We did not mention Natalie Trundy, who's back playing a different character, this time in The Mask. Yeah, she's gone from uh, from one of our underground dwellers to one of our scientists. Now she's finally a chimpanzee, and she is going to uh, uh, you know bat her eyes at Caesar and it's touching. Natalie hated working with the makeup. Um, she had a much better time in the previous two films. This one, she said that it was just a nightmare having to put this this makeup on all the time. She just is not the type of person who could handle it well. But, you know, she does a great job. I, I think so, too. I mean, she's she was fine. And the, it, it was a cute chimp and uh, made for a, a great addition to the climax. One last cast member that I just want to mention, David Chow played Aldo. As you remember from the last film, the history that Cornelius tells us, Aldo is the first one who says no. Aldo, um, I don't think ever is named in the film. If so, I totally missed it. But Aldo is actually credited as David Chow. So he is in here somewhere. And what's interesting is David Chow actually also played a chimpanzee in the first Planet of the Apes. When did he say no? He doesn't. That's and and again, I go back to this whole idea of time travel and what time travel does. Because now the fact that we have introduced Milo, the talking ape, back in the seventies, all of a sudden the, we're on a different trajectory of of the kind of the present where the apes come from and their history is no longer Aldo being the first to say no now their history is caesar being the first to say no well that's just nonsense it is i just found it interesting that they actually credit somebody yeah, that they actually them. credit him right yeah. right hmm okay enough of that nonsense uh, john chambers is back uh, with hair and makeup and uh, he's still great uh, great team there i thought the masks actually were were particularly strong uh in this movie in most places i didn't get that feeling of um you know 
fake dead, ones. Yeah. dead fake gorilla masks. And, and part of that, I'm sure, is that they have gotten better at it uh, and being able to do it with less money. Also, I think I'm just more accustomed and have adapted to seeing these, you know, gorillas and living with gorillas on screen in front of my face now that we're in movie four. And I've probably uh, subconsciously begun to forgive uh, those kinds of things. Plus, it's easier to get past it when it's so dark. <laughs> yes. Screen. Also, that's true. Yeah. Right. Tom Scott is on for the music. You know, it's it's not um, like the greatest standout score or anything like that. But I will say right when it starts with the opening, which weirdly also we should note has no titles, like no logos, no company logos, a very weird right. opening. But Tom Scott's music kicks in and I found it so stinking effective. I really enjoyed just everything that he was doing in the beginning. It kind of turns to TV music after a while, which is something that uh, was uh, his background before and certainly after this. But I think that he's got moments through here that work really well. Is this the fourth movie in a row with no awards, Andy? It is the third. Oh, wait, because Planet of the Apes had some awards. Correct. Okay. Nobody liked sequels. They didn't trust sequels at that time. They didn't think they warranted awards, apparently. People are funny. Yeah. How did it do at the box office? Well, like we said, even though the franchise kept making money, 20th Century Fox was still working to make their money back after those big losses from the late 60s. For this film, Thompson received a budget of $1.7 million or $9.8 million in today's dollars. That's the lowest budget of any film in the franchise. The movie opened on June 14, 1972, the same week that Deep Throat was introduced in theaters. Despite the budget cuts and its darker tone, the box office still proved a success as the film went on to make $9.7 million, or $55.9 million in today's dollars. That leaves the movie with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $524,000 and allowed for one final chapter. And with that, Andy, I think it is time for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see the list of all the movies we have talked about on this very show. Or you can just swipe over in your show notes, tap flickchart. It'll take you straight to this movie where you can add it to your own catalog and see how it stands up to ours. First up, we have Conquest of the Planet of the Apes or Fat City, both 1972. I would watch Conquest first. Conquest or Time Crimes. Gotta go Time Crimes. Yeah, Time Crimes. Conquest or Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. I'm going to say mm-hmm. Conquest. Okay. If it Now, if it had been Old Boy. <laughs> conquest of the Planet of the Apes or the Outlaw, Josie Wales. You're probably Conquest on this, I'm Conquest, you? yeah. Yeah. Okay, I can go Conquest. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes or Judo. Conquest. Yeah, I'll say Conquest. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes or Scarlet Street? I'd probably watch Conquest first. Yep, me too. That's weird. I know. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes or, oh, more Zhang Yimou, Raise the Red Lantern. That's a terrific film. It is. I think I'm going to, I think I'll probably go Red Lantern. Me too. Well, that lands Conquest in our top 100. It is at 98 out of 367. (laughs) Wow. That is pretty I'm impressive. I'm telling you, they keep getting better. It's a Less good money. One. Take away some money. <laughs> That's right. Take more money right? away. Come on, baby. There yeah. you go. Good That's times. fantastic. How'd this do? How's this hold up at your in your um, uh, letterbox? Uh, letterbox.com slash the next reel. How's your star ranking? The last week's film, I gave three and a half stars. Um, this week's film, I still give three and a half stars, but I still favor it over last week's film i just i i find this film a really dark journey that i really enjoy taking so three and a half stars with a a big old heart of love i'm exactly where you are on this one absolutely three and a half and a big heart uh that one and a half stars i get really tied up in some of those narrative holes and uh, as great as this film is as much as i think it has to say uh i i still suffer those pieces heavily Right, right. I hear you. I hear you. Awesome. Can't, can't fault you on that. We're we're going to wrap this uh, series up next week, right? We are. We are. We're going to be jumping in just a very short uh, one year to battle for the Planet of the Apes. 
Um, yeah, we're not going to be doing Tim Burton's um, remake, which I actually just rewatched. I figured I was bashing it enough on this uh, series that I should <laughs> rewatch it to make sure it warranted all the bashing, um, which it largely does. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. But we're not going to be talking about that one, nor are we going to be talking about any of the recent ones, uh, because uh, a couple of those we've already done on, on the film board. So we figured mm-hmm. we didn't need to cover them again. But yes, we will be talking about Battle next week um, before we move on to a new uh, new series i'm very very excited about it uh again this has been just a, a treat watching all these movies back to back and i i think they're i'm in, certainly enjoying them more watching them in proximity to one another and that i think is uh that was a prediction or certainly a question i had when we started this uh and it is proven out so far i hope next week is a nice and satisfying cap I, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to uh, look at that one and see how this whole thing wraps up. It's certainly, I think, as a kid watching these on those um, those marathon weekends when they would have them, certainly helped me find more of a connection to them just the way that they all folded into one another. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about next week's film with you and uh, seeing how the whole thing ends. Me too. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash the next reel and get access to our exclusive members only weekend show, the Saturday matinee. We talk about movie news and new trailers. Plus, we go head to head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too. If you support us at different levels, just head on over to patreon.com slash the next reel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show for free in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart running our Instagram, Ben Lott running our Twitter, and of course, thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song, Ragtime Instrumental, as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Yeah, it does. From time to time, it really steps up. And this time, there aren't very many one-star movies. A testament to the strength of this film. I uh, went with a two-star, uh, which I, I think I'm. I think I'll lead off, and we'll go down from there. Right? Sounds good. Sounds good. all right. This one comes from Jefferson. He says, uh, I could never figure out how the intelligent ape was communicating with the rest of the apes. You know, Jefferson, I I feel your pain. The last 40 minutes of the movie, when the apes take over, is the reason for my unfavorable review. I could never figure out how the intelligent ape was communicating with the rest of the apes. Also, all the apes run into 20 policemen shooting their guns point blank, and two apes fall down? (laughs) (laughs) He may have gotten as dizzy as I did during that final fight. I I don't know. It was dark. It was very dark. It was very dark. dark. Yeah. Well, I've got a one star by Helene Chadwick, who says, I want to cancel all the Planet of the Apes movies, please. And the money put back in my account, please. (laughs) (laughs) I love it when comments become customer service. It's fantastic. What's best about that is there is actually one comment by none other than than Anonymous Andy. Oh, and, and this is very funny because it ties in nicely with uh, some of the stuff that we've been uh, that we've seen over on our uh, Discord channel. Um, Anonymous Andy says, "Would you say that you hate every ape you see, from chimpan A to chimpan Z?" <laughs> <laughs> nice oh, way yeah. to throw some Simpsons in there, Anonymous oh, Andy. You're so clever. <laughs> Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM, and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. 
If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash Transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.